Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Dropping by the studio alongside Tom and I, I'm really pleased to say, is the former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia, formerly the chief economist for the bulk of his 30-year career at the firm. It's Stephen Roach, the Yale University professor. Good morning to you, Stephen. Good morning, Jonathan. Good to see you. Good to see you, sir. So you authored Unbalanced, the Codependency of America and China. If you had to rewrite that now, Professor, how different would it be, if at all? Well, Jonathan, I mean, you know, you can always look back on a book and say what you might have done a little bit different. But what I like about the book is is the framework. It's um, it's now about four years old, but it was a framework that looked at the intersection between an economy that consumes too much and saves too little America and an economy that uh, consumes too little and saves too much. Uh, the United States, and two nations that have really, uh, because of those um, complementary imbalances, became very intertwined. And so I uh, ended the book by saying, you know, this is uh, a collision course uh, if they don't uh, address their imbalances. And what's happened since the book was published is that uh, the U.S. elected a president who said, uh, we're fine you're not, uh, and we're going to push you uh, to change the way you behave, but we're not going to change. And that's sort of an asymmetrical uh, response to the framework that that I laid out. And I would certainly uh, update the book to reflect that uh, destabilizing impact, but I'd use the same framework uh, to assess its implications. Professor, you anticipated the tension if nothing changed, and ultimately nothing changed, and here we are with the tension. There are some people that think, some people in this market even, that we could get a ceasefire, a truce, at the end of this month at the G20. Do you look at this as a generational story, though, something that's going to play out for years and years and years? I do, Jonathan. I think um, both presidents certainly want to lower the, uh, the, the, the friction that's, that has been building um, over the past uh, couple of years, and there may be some... Uh, type of uh, uh, sort of standstill agreement that is reached uh, in Buenos Aires um, uh, on December 1. But the fundamental clash between uh, two systems, especially over this uh, uh, deep issue of uh, innovation, technology transfer, uh, intellectual property rights, uh, and the role that the state plays uh, in supporting or not supporting that in the case of the U.S., uh, those those are going to be long-standing issues that I think we're going to have to grapple with uh, for many many years to come. Are you still the toughest grader at Yale? Are you are you quality C Roach? Is that what they call you? I'm I'm still a, I'm a fair grader, Tom. Yeah, fair and balanced, right? Fair or unbalanced. I'm a fair grader. How you know it's a, an incredible to, to think about the great inflation pressures anybody faces at these elite uh, universities. I want you to do a, a course right now with the President of the United States. My experience in macroeconomics, and you're expert at this, is a linkage of trade dynamics with savings equaling investment, S equals I, run by how you would speak to President Trump right now to explain 
why we have a trade deficit and how it's removed from the Navarro fears of China. Don't look at trade in isolation. It is an outgrowth of uh, the macroeconomic uh, balance, as you just put it, between saving and investment. And up on the surveillance chalkboard, you're going to say America undersaves. Continue. Our savings rate uh, domestically, adding it up for businesses, households, and the government sector, adjusting for depreciation, which you must do. Uh, Why are you pointing to me when you say depreciation? Pharaoh, you, you, you could point to Pharaoh. <laughs> you point to me about a depreciable asset? Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're an appreciating asset. Thank but you. depreciation is important to take out because you want the saving that's left over to fund the net growth in your capital stock. And so the net domestic savings rate in the U.S. right now averages about 3% of national income, uh, which is well below half its uh, already depressed average in the final three decades of the 20th century and the lowest savings rate for any leading nation in the history of the world. So lacking in saving and wanting to grow, we import surplus savings from abroad. We run a massive current account deficit and a multilateral trade deficit with 102 countries to attract the capital. And so China is a piece, the biggest piece of a multilateral problem, Mr. President. Oh, thank you. My essay of the week, John Farrow, is Michael Corbett, who runs a small bank in New York. And Corbett says, hey, service sector, are the dynamics of the American service sector in our trade balance measurement? Sure. There, there are, you know, we, we look at trade balances in both goods and services uh, and, and the balance of payments deficit uh, reflects that. Uh, we don't have as big a deficit when we add our surplus and services in, but we still have a, a, a deficit. And um, sure, we can um, uh, attempt uh, to um, uh, temper uh, the, the, the shortfall in goods. Uh, with uh, a growing surplus in services. But services, by definition, uh, are less tradable. They're becoming more tradable right now. And so there's a limit as to how much we can expect that offset to be. You have both done a great job of going through the economic conditions that result in a deficit between one country and a group of other countries. And I think that's fair enough. And I think you're also making a strong point that the ultimate measure of a relationship as to whether it is fair or not is not necessarily the trade deficit. That does not mean that what China is doing is fair. There are some big issues, some big tech firms that would like to operate in China and can't, Professor. There are a series of issues that need to be addressed. The president isn't completely off base, is he? No, but Jonathan, I I mean, honestly, I've looked at the evidence that the allegations that you know, that China steals, you know, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars a year in terms of technology and intellectual property. Those estimates, they're, they're packaged in slick documents with beautiful fonts and nice covers. They are not worth the paper they're printed on. They are pathetically weak in the way they identify uh, the, the loss to America from uh, Chinese intellectual property theft. There's not one shred of evidence, for example, that the uh, uh, trade representative, Robert Lighthizer, can assemble to um, talk about these allegations of forced technology transfer through joint ventures. He admits it. He says, oh, it's behind closed doors. It's, it's something we, so we have to look at proxy evidence through some you know, uh, absurd survey conducted by the US-China uh, business but council. we can That's look at the, the, way you the can overwhelming these majority things. of goods, counterfeit goods that turn up at the border come from one single country, Professor, and that's China. Yeah, but you know how much that, you know what that number is? 
that number is $1.8 billion. And so they use that $1.8 billion I, of counterfeit goods I'm, I'm to blow it to up say, to 200 to 300 I'm, billion. I'm not trying to say that the trade deficit is a result of counterfeit goods. I'm just trying to say that China is still cheating and there are some issues that need to be addressed. Look, of, I, again, I've looked at the data, Jonathan. $1.8 billion doesn't exactly translate into the, uh, the allegations of two to 300 billion. There are three pieces of um, technology theft uh, that are um, reported in this so-called IP commission uh, by, that was headed up by Dennis Blair and John Hunson. One is the smallest, the one you pointed out to, is uh, pirated and counterfeit goods. Then there's software, uh, and then there's the big one, 80 to 90 percent of the uh, uh, alleged theft through no. trade secrets. They have no evidence on trade secrets. They, they build models, <laughs> but there's zero evidence on the amount no. of IT th theft that can be attributed to that very large um, amorphous construct we'll get you on after our g meetings what are they john like in 10 days end of the month end, end of the month, month. yes yeah, spills over into early well. december as well i think it's stephen roach professor great University. to see you the unbalanced he's, he's, you. Always, I mean, he's always look, fired we, up we've got to get in <laughs> you know you, you the, the evidence that has become part okay. of yeah. the accepted wisdom john i want to do a major shout out to the uh new york finest the new york police department and particularly the fire department over what I witnessed last night, uh, the sheet of ice that was Madison Avenue, I mean sheet of ice, and uncountable heavy trees down, crushing cars, like, and they're still there this morning. I mean, it was extraordinary, and it goes to our team corralling our guests, and in in just that Steve Roach could even be here today. Lucky is, us. Is, is like a big deal. It is a big deal. I mean, how long was it from New Haven? I mean, the Look, I, I was, was driving from Yale last night uh, to my home in New Canaan, Connecticut. It mm -hmm. takes me 45 minutes. It took me four and a half hours. The yeah. Mayor yeah. Parkway was closed. I had to back down a, a ramp uh, and thank God for GPS, found my way to yeah. uh, 95 and barely made it, well, limped home. I mean, this has happened many times before, but just massive uh, thank you from all of us, Steve Roach. For, for being here, John, I tried to for get you, the Sikorsky up. Well, I tried to get the Sikorsky up in New Canaan, <laughs> but we couldn't get the helicopter. Was Fifth Avenue down. clear this morning? Are you okay? Yeah. Tom makes the polar expedition up Fifth Avenue. It was. Was it, it was, tough? It was tough. <laughs> <you> <laughs> that left turn at Bergdorf. Was, I bet it was real tough. I bet left, it was real that tough. That left turn at Bergdorf yeah. can be expensive. Yeah, I bet. I bet. The Carlisle <laughs> up a few blocks. Yeah. <laughs> struggling professor it's great to have you with us before the uh, before the quick break we were talking about theft and, and the difference between that and what I might call polite coercion can we accept there was some polite coercion to get many companies to operate in China and share technology voluntarily look I, I don't know what the right word is Jonathan um, the, the joint venture structure is a, um, a structure that's controversial that China and many, many other developing economies have used over the years to um, uh, frame the way in which multinationals from developed nations participate in their markets. Uh, and um, uh, if you want to do business in China, and I yeah. was part of a joint venture with you the were, China yeah. Construction Bank, we built the first investment bank in China, CICC. Uh, you have to uh, go into a joint venture. Uh, and when you're, when you're in a joint venture with a partner in China or anywhere else, you share people, ideas, systems, ide uh, products, distribution channels, 
uh, and um, you work together to build the best business you can. Uh, and certainly that involves knowledge of how products are designed uh, in other countries. Is that forced? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all, you know, sort of semantics. I well, think. we can use the auto industry as an example. There was a big, big tariff on the imports of luxury autos. Effectively, many of these companies were not forced, but heavily incentivized. If you want access to the Chinese market, you've got to produce onshore and you've got to have a partnership. You've got to share the technology. So that's a pretty big decision that some of these companies have yeah, got to make. General Motors we've, made we've, the decision. They went into a big JV in, in Shanghai, and, the, and that's did, now their Professor. biggest market, the, the point, The point being that it's the illusion of openness to then turn around 10 years later and say, we're going to drop our auto tariffs when the companies are already there producing. They're not going to leave again and start exporting. And I think the president in this administration might look at this situation and say, well, if these are the rules for China... Why is it different coming the other way? Why can a Chinese tech firm open up here freely when the likes of Facebook can't play the, play the game over there? Well, look, the president um, uh, uses the word reciprocal, uh, and I think that that's an important uh, concept to evaluate many of these allegations. If, if, if we're um, allowing uh, the Chinese to operate with one set of rules in this country and they're allowing a different set of rules in their country, then there's there's clearly uh, room to negotiate, and this underscores, uh, you know, a proposal that I and many others have uh, uh, have supported for a long time, and that is, come on, let's do a bilateral investment treaty between the U.S. and China to put these market opening uh, uh, moves uh, on a common playing field. Yeah, and we've negotiated this thing for now almost a dozen years, and we can't do it. We have a great deal maker as president. Why can't you do a bilateral investment deal, Mr. President? It's a debate that will continue. It will, and, and the professor we'll will be back. Through, through to, uh, Hopefully the, uh, the drive to the studio the won't G20 be as long. Is, well, no, it, I'm going to do the walk by Bergdorf's now. Oh, yeah. I'm not, oh, going, I'm not going back, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we thank Dana Telsey for her wisdom on Bergdorf earlier this week, and, of course, we're doing a lot of retail uh, as well, retail study of you the American consumer. You guys got consumer. some expensive taste, haven't you? Dropping by Bergdorf's together. Tom's no, we don't go in. Go we don't into go the, in. Go into we the car line and drink coats, together. Right, huh? Winter coats. Winter, winter coats are big right now. Nice. Yes, winter coats are... They had the mortgage vet bill to, you know... I go to TJ Maxx. Vet bill wouldn't I'm go I'm pleased you guys night. get to go to, yeah. to Bergdorf's. How am I meant to introduce the next guest without just saying, and here's someone from Britain to talk to someone from Britain? He's so much more than that. It's Anthony Philipson, British Consul General to New York. Good morning to you, Anthony. Good morning. How are you? You've got a tough job. What are you telling businesses in the United States as to what on earth is going on in the UK? What we're telling them is that the Prime Minister set out at the beginning of this process her ambition to deliver on the result of the referendum in June 2016, to do so in a way that would ensure an orderly, smooth withdrawal from the EU, and also look towards an ambitious future partnership with the EU, as, uh, but as an independent member, uh, as an independent country, at the same time as being able to go our own way in the world and do ambitious free trade agreements, including with the likes of the US. But crucial thing throughout all that is the need to deliver uh, some certainty and some continuity, and I would say that's what the withdrawal agreement, the draft withdrawal agreement that's just been published does. It delivers a smooth withdrawal, it delivers an implementation period that gives us certainty and continuity uh, in order to then put in place 
the future partnership that's set out in the outline political declaration. There's a long way to go, but we're getting there. If the UK is in the customs union, can they go about dealing with other countries and setting up other trade treaties? So the Prime Minister has made clear, and the outline political declaration makes clear, that in terms of our future partnership, we will not be in the customs union. We will not be in the single market. We will remain within the frameworks for the duration of the implementation period. But as I say, that's important to deliver certainty and time for business to plan for those future arrangements. During that implementation period, we will also be able to look to negotiate, uh, agree and ratify trade agreements. We just won't be able to implement them until we're out of the implementation period towards the uh, early 2021. And then we'll be able to do what we, what we want to do. To get through the implementation period, ultimately, there needs to be a solution to the Irish border, doesn't there? There does, yes. Uh, and, so basically, uh, are we clinging to hope that that solution will come around in the next couple of years? No, we are planning to bring about that solution in the next couple of years. We have always made clear that the only way we can deal with the uh, the issues around the Irish border, which we're, we're 100% committed to dealing with, and we, we always have been, is through that future partnership uh, in order right. to deliver a, a trade arrangement between us that means that we don't need that uh, those checks at the border. During uh, what the uh, EU and the Irish government have said is that they want certainty that there won't be any gap between the end of the implementation right. period and the future partnerships, and that's where the concept of the backstop has come in. And the Prime Minister made very clear uh, yesterday in both her statement to uh, our Parliament and also in a press conference that you know, we, we know we needed to agree the backstop because without it, the EU would not have agreed the withdrawal agreement. But we needed to agree a backstop that operated in a way that we, could, right. uh, we couldn't get trapped in indefinitely and it would deliver the certainty we need, and that's what we believe we have agreed in the draft agreement. If you're just joining us, the British Consul General to New York, Her Majesty's Trade Commissioner for North America, Anthony Philipson with us now. Mr. Philipson, what I find fascinating, and I mentioned earlier a Sky TV survey, which shows a stunning support for the Prime Minister, while all these other conflicting parties have minority support beneath that. Can she affect a constructive outcome of Brexit with a, mi- with a minority coalition, or by definition, does she and the Conservative Party have to attain a, major- a majority voice to get this done? I think the Prime Minister was very clear in her press conference yesterday, uh, and I think you know, really, really explicit, that her aim from the beginning has been to deliver a, a Brexit that delivers for the British economy, for the British people in terms of our prosperity and security. That is the deal that she uh, has uh, proposed. It's the deal that the Cabinet has agreed. It's the deal that she is now taking to Parliament, starting with her statement yesterday, running through the special summit with the EU on the 25th of November and then up to a parliamentary vote uh, sometime after that. She is also starting to make the case, and has always been making the case actually, to the British people about the type of Brexit that will deliver on the referendum result in June 2016. That, I think, is the case that she's making very powerfully and very coherently and will keep doing over the next few weeks and months. You represent all of Britain to North America. I'm representing on the Bloomberg the Charter Barclays, which has had a challenging two days, to say the least. I mean, I understand the Royal Bank of Scotland's got its own story and drama with Sir Howard Davies and the the rebuilding there. But what is the, um, the immediacy of this for the financial system of the city? What is the urgency to get something done? 
I think there are two parts, uh, well, at least two parts to, the, to an answer to that question. Uh, one is that what the city and the financial services sector more broadly across the UK uh, have wanted is some sense of uh, predictability about what the future arrangements are going to be and that they will have time to plan for them. And I think the withdrawal agreement, the implementation period, the political declaration sets out that, that way forward, as I've mentioned. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, though, that they want to know is in the context of the future, not only what will be that arrangement between the EU, and there are some specific references to how we will deal with financial services in the political declaration that talk about close and structured cooperation between the UK and the EU, which is important, but also talking about recognising uh, that each side will have regulatory and decision-making autonomy and really putting a premium as well on financial stability as well as market integrity and fair competition. But crucially, I think what it also allows us to do is to continue to think about the role of the City of London, the role of the UK financial services sector in the global economy of the future, which is not only going to be a story about our relationship with the EU, it's going to be a story about our continuing deepening relationship with the US, which we're taking forward through a uh, regulatory working group agreed between the Treasuries uh, back in March, and also, of course, the other growth economies of the world. So it's a forward-looking agenda. I think it's an ambitious agenda, and yeah. it's one that we want to take forward with the industry. If I was going to communicate any bias this morning, I would say it's towards the City of London. I want to see the City of London do well. Many other people want to see the City of London, the square mile, flourish over the coming generations. Anthony, there'll be some people listening to this and saying, this all sounds great. I don't think it's going to get through Parliament, though. Then what? So, as I said earlier, the Prime Minister has begun setting out the case to Parliament, and there will be obviously a crucial vote, uh, a meaningful vote, sometime uh, in the next few weeks. Um, and the Prime Minister, I think, would just reiterate, uh, I would reiterate on her behalf, that we have set out uh, the way forward. We believe it's a Brexit that delivers on the result of the referendum. It delivers for the city. It delivers for the British economy. Uh, and as Liam Fox, I saw, said in an interview in the UK this morning, uh, it is the, the deal that, that works, and that is the one that the government is now getting behind and will try and push through Parliament. Final question. We had the statement from the Prime Minister at the end of yesterday, and at the end she would say, said that she would do a Jeffrey boycott, and everyone in the United States scratched their head and said, who on earth is Jeffrey boycott? Can you communicate to Tom Keane and some of our listeners who Jeffrey boycott is, Anthony? Jeffrey Boycott is one of our most famous opening test cricket batsmen, uh, famous for his uh, obduracy and his, uh, his uh, focus on uh, occupying the crease and putting runs on the board. And I think uh, I've known for a long time, actually, that he's a particular hero of the Prime Minister, and I think she's reflecting all of those qualities in this process. There we go. Anthony Phillipson with a bit of cricket at the end Fantastic. for you, Tom. Folks, this will be on our podcast worldwide, an important conversation with the Council General. John, what did you learn there as an expert? Um, that it's really important that this deal gets through to have some kind of certainty for business. Yeah. I think the real problem is that there's many people that doubt this gets through Parliament. What I've also learned over the last couple of weeks as well is that the Brexiteers that have criticised the Prime Minister and the deal that she's come up with have totally failed to come up with an alternative. And what you've started to see yeah. is many of those Brexiteers actually and acknowledge this, that this is as good as we can do. I mean, I'm not going to hang it on one poll, but in the Sky TV poll, the Brexiteers were a small part of the debate. Well, look at Michael Gove. Parties. Look at Michael Gove. Michael Gove is getting behind the Prime Minister and saying, this is as good as we can do. Yeah. He didn't say that on the campaign trail, did he? Why has Mr. Johnson been silent? Am I wrong? He's I'd been say he's silent? been very quiet. I, I, you know, I don't have a Boris reason for Johnson. it. Yeah, but I think you're right. He's been very, okay. very quiet. You know who else was very quiet in the referendum, though? Theresa May. And what job did she end up with?
Yeah, well, okay. That's that's the... the Everyone's got a strategy. The Wars of the Tories. We'll have more for you on Monday. That was wonderful. You know, Tom, one of the things that everybody's going to have to do is get to learn the names of the new members of Congress. We have some new members of Congress. They'll be taking their seats, obviously, in January. Margaret Brennan. She's the only one who's been on the fifth floor of Rayburn. Margaret Brennan is the only one that's ever (laughs) gone up where the... They're so far away from Capitol Hill. If they're lucky, they'll see Speaker Pelosi like once in the first eight weeks. I see that. And that's why they got the carrier pigeons on the ledge, right? Just to send out those messages of how to vote. Margaret Brennan joins us, the host of Face the Nation. Of course, you can listen to Face the Nation on Bloomberg Radio Sundays at 2 p.m. in New York and in Washington, D.C., and also on Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport, Face the Nation this Sunday, 2 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. Margaret, you've got some rookies coming into the uh, into the studio. What, what? Tell us what the focus is going to be on. We do. They're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and hopeful and optimistic, and now we're bringing them to Washington. Um, and, and we're going to ask them, okay, you're here. Uh, what, as a freshman class, are you going to try to do when Democrats get the majority in January? We've got Representative Dan Crenshaw, Republican from Texas, who you know has uh, really become um, well-known in popular culture because of that appearance on Saturday Night Live last week. Uh, but we also have a, a number of Democrats, including one of the first Native American women to be uh, elected from New Mexico, uh, will be joining us. And we're going to be asking what this new complexion, this new diversity that we're seeing, this record number of women, what that actually means legislatively. Uh, it, it sounds good. What does it translate to in terms of policy shift, if anything? And where will they be focusing their efforts uh, in January? Remember, Democrats also have to vote the week after Thanksgiving on who their leader will be. Nancy Pelosi says she's got the votes lined up. She will once again return to the speaker's role. Uh, But there is somewhat of a a whisper campaign about uh, trying to run someone against her. And so far, no one is jumping in what Nancy Pelosi says are warm waters. Well, you know, I got the chance yesterday to speak to Anna Eshoo, a congresswoman from the 18th District, Democrat from California. And she uh, concurs basically with you sort of in sympathy with what you're saying, that Nancy Pelosi will be the next uh, speaker uh, of the House. But she did mention that one of the topics that she believes is going to get a lot of attention is health care, specifically because that was an issue that was raised in all of the polling as to why the results of the midterm turned out the way they did. Yes, uh, and, and you hear that from Republicans, you hear that from Democrats. Um, Nancy Pelosi, when I spoke with her last week, said that is her North Star, that being a speaker, one of her chief motiva- motivations is to protect the Affordable Care Act. Now, what does that mean in terms of went any wiggle room to reform it or in any way to change um, or, or reaffirm protections for pre-existing conditions, because you saw that huge shift among yeah. Republicans running, saying now they do want to protect uh, pre-existing conditions because so many Americans said this was important to them, right. even though the Trump Justice Department has been arguing the opposite case here. Um, and, and so it, it's one of the big things. It's one of the pocketbook issues that 
people voted on mm-hmm. and voted for change. Margaret Brennan, CBS News, drove forward the conversation earlier in the week uh, discussing a more than active Mr. Mueller as well. Mm. We're going to have news flow before we get to face the nation on Sunday. Do you just assume as a grizzled Washington veteran that Friday is Mueller time? (laughs) We're holding our breath. It feels like one of those days, and our Justice Department reporter Paula Reed has been saying indictments are expected. Um, At this point, they don't look like surprises. Uh, Roger Stone um, and others have been out there identifying yeah. themselves as expecting some some issues. Um, but hold your breath. Let's see what happens. Uh, we know the president has this top of mind because he's been talking about it on Twitter and to reporters these last few days. Does he have proper legal counsel on these matters? What is the CBS reporting of the depth of the president's counsel and the White House's counsel on Mr. Mueller's investigation? Well, the question isn't so much what counsel does he have as does he take any counsel? That's He keeps his own, right? And that's been the frustration of his uh, past lawyers like John Dowd and Ty Cobb and others who worked either for him or at the White House around him. Don McGahn as well, um, who who just recently departed from the job. Um, It sounds like from uh, what we've been hearing that the president is looking at answering some of those questions via writing. From the special counsel, right. uh, Rudy Giuliani and others have been, you know, urging against it. But we will, we will see what happens yeah. uh, on a Friday, as you say. Margaret, People look at the clock. They do. They look at the clock. We do too. We have to go, Margaret. Thank you so much, Margaret Brennan. Of course, watch CBS. Your local stations face the nation Sunday morning. You can hear at 2 p.m. in New York, Washington D.C. and Bloomberg 106.1 Boston Newbury Report. Do that on Bloomberg Radio, 2 p.m. Sunday afternoon. This is the interview of the year for me and Pim Fox because the weekend beckons where we will either be at Sephora or probably more likely at Glossier with various offspring. Now we speak to an authority on this, and I will introduce her, Stephanie Wissink of Jeffries. And she doesn't follow individual companies, but she is an expert on the life that Pim Fox and I leave. Hi, everybody. It's me, Ingrid Nielsen. I've got 3.8 million subscribers on YouTube. Face masks I love right now. And that is our weekend life. Stephanie, wonderful to have you uh, with us. What happened? Makeup used to be like, you know, three choices. And there was the rich choices, the middle. And YouTube has taken over your world of cosmetics. And am I right that the whole beauty face mix thing is booming? You're right. We have been in a hyper cycle of hyper beauty cycle. consumption over the last five years. Fresh and fancy. You know, frankly, <laughs> yes, versus fancy other things. Uh, she is using beauty as a fashion accessory. Really? Let's think about the number of selfies that are being taken every single day, particularly by millennials and Gen Zers. The amount of visual whoa, validation whoa, whoa. she's seeing in a small screen really? is playing into her behavior. It's like V squared. I like that. Visual V-squared. validation. Squared. <laughs> That's right. And what she's finding in the beauty industry as well is a wild an enormous discovery-rich zone of new brands and new products. 
And we're just seeing for the first time this year in 2018 a moderation in that enthusiasm and that participation and that consumption. But it has been a tremendous multi-year cycle of consumption. And, And to your point, the marketing mechanism has been altered, and I think permanently, to where the voice of the industry is now becoming these content creators in social and um, video formats like YouTube, where they are educating the consumer. I want Pim to jump in here. Pim, hi, everybody. It's me. Tina tries it. I love it. World's most powerful facial. Well, you know, Tom. Aztec secret. Tom went to use a marker in his house, and he picked something up in the semi-darkness of the early morning, and it turned out to be lipstick. <laughs> this whole idea of marketing, buy one, get one free, the samples that are given out, does that work in the beauty industry differently than it does in other industries, other consumer products, businesses? Is the conversion rate higher? Well, what we're finding, and I think your your introduction is, you know, these, these zones of discovery have changed. So instead yeah. of a department store counter with a, an expert, quote unquote, in a white lab coat, informing you on what you need to use for your regimen, we are finding consumers increasingly gravitating towards places like Ulta and Sephora, which are open fields of this self-discovery. You can walk up to a display, you can try the product, you can take a makeup wipe and wipe it off and try a different product. And so there's this ability to develop your own regimen based on the discovery of the brands that you're um, learning about. Yeah, the, and in many cases, you know, content is okay. leading people towards these brands. Let me Pim, jump in here on the money side, but all I know is the regimen is light in your wallet. That's what I know. Of course, it's, but it's also transfer money from one part of your wallet to another part because there's got to be limited dollars. Where does that money come from that goes into beauty Mm. and skincare products fantastic and timely question this is something that we're trying to solve for right now because we have seen this hyper cycle in beauty and to your point if we have wage growth in the three four percent range and we have spending growth in this category in the double digits she's borrowing from somewhere else to fund that binge and one suspicion we have is that she has been borrowing from her traditional fashion wallet And because beauty is acting as a fashion category, particularly given the amount of content being created about it, she has been borrowing from those other areas. And for the first time just this fall, and we're watching this very closely, and today in the market, even with the department stores out reporting, this is the first quarter where the department stores have not called out beauty as a driver of their business. Interesting. Rather, Apparel, footwear, accessories are starting to take a leadership role in the growth within the discretionary category. You're just joining us. The interview of the week, Stephanie Wisnick with us with Jeffries, uh, is is we look at the research and the the thinking behind this ginormous business. Pim, all I can say is Kathleen Lights. Uh, Hey, guys, it's me. Here are a few masks that I love. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for watching. XOXOXOXO. Well, that's what you got to do when you put out your tweets is all those exos. Uh, you, you know, you, you, you mentioned, Stephanie, the, uh, the shift in dollars from one area to another. I'm looking, for example, the shift in investment dollars. A company like Ulta Beauty, stock is up 40% so far this year. Are the are these these businesses a really high margin, right? I mean, this, the, the gross margin on this stuff can be upwards of 90%. 
Yes, particularly from the vendor perspective. So if you just use two companies in the public market as a proxy, a company like an Estee Lauder enjoys gross margins of 80%. And Ulta, um, you know, at the operating margin level is in the the low to mid-teens. And so we see these businesses being relatively stable from a margin perspective ultimately comes down to the velocity of consumption. And Alta is actually experiencing a very interesting period in their evolution where they're continuing to grow from a unit basis perspective and they're continuing to comp, you know, 7%. And so we can clearly see that the consumer traffic within beauty is migrating towards Alta's environment. And they have a 30 yeah. million person loyalty program, okay. very sticky Uh, But the other thing I would put on top of that is they signed a very interesting, exclusive partnership with Kylie Jenner. So to your comments on influencers. (laughs) That's why I steer her Yeah, 110 million followers. You know, we don't think that's necessarily going to be critically important for sales. But, man, that is a huge point of validation for Ulta when Kylie Jenner loves your company. Stephanie, uh, uh, Pim and I are looking out literally onto the floor that Robin Williams was in years ago in Bloomingdale's in their makeup as well. Are they the loser? Is that iconic floor at Bloomingdale's the loser in all this? Well, I think the, the baton has shifted from baby boomers to millennials being the population driver of the category. And so if we think about millennials today in their late to mid-20s, they grew up in the core of the mall not in the anchors. These are your Abercrombie, American Eagle, PacSun kids. So they're very comfortable shopping by category domain. So Ulta and Sephora cater to that mindset. You go into a store and this is a a very well-defined category that you're shopping. You're not shopping for footwear inside of Ulta. You're shopping for beauty and beauty only. And so I think it, it aligns with their school of thought and their comfort level. And also, I think it it gives them the power. The consumer has the power in these environments, not the woman standing behind the counter. And I think what we're finding with millennials and and young people and Gen Z in particular, they don't trust the institutional representation and message. That woman just wants to sell you a bunch of things you don't need. That's their mindset versus if I can go in and self-discover then I'm using my own intellect, my own confidence, my own experience to guide and build my own basket. And there's an empowerment element to that. And I think that's why we're seeing specialty beauty companies outperform and take share from legacy formats like department stores. Well, that's almost as if it's a DIY experience, right? It is. And it's remarkable if you look at some of the data Consumers will spend 20 to 30 minutes inside of an Ulta store. It's almost a, a vacation from her life for her. She goes in, she plays with product, she learns about new things, and she's among her tribe. She's with people that like beauty too. So it's a very oh, interesting man. visceral I'm taking Tom there her. today. We're, Steph- we're going. I think he needs... Doing, Stephanie, what are you doing tomorrow? Can you come over and take he needs two a little young help cherubs here. down to Glossier so they can be with oh. their tribe? It's going to bring your plug. Stephanie, this is this has been beyond informative. Go away. Stephanie Wisnick <laughs> with Jeffries. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. 
Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.